Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. All right, so we're continuing our series, Cultural Church. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if you have your physical Bibles, use the table of contents. If you want to be brave, it's about halfway in the middle of the New Testament. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going. And as we come together in this uh, time, you know, it's been a heavy week. And we're going into a heavy week. And it's a reminder that we live in a sin-ridden, fallen world. And so as we see the tragedies, tragedies like we did this past week, as we go into Memorial Day, which again, tragedies is what we're honoring, right? Men and women who have served to give their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy. So it's, it's a somber week, and it has been. But know that God is still sovereign, he's still good, and he's still faithful, but we're seeing the effects of sin in our culture and throughout the world. And so it's interesting, as we come to Memorial Day, we're praying for the families of survivors, we're thankful for their sacrifices, but we know, one, we enjoy freedoms because they're sacrificed, but we know we enjoy ultimate freedom for the sacrifice of Christ himself that he gives through faith. And so it's really a paradox that we live in, right? Like this somber emotion, yet we have an expression of joy because of what Christ did who gives us ultimate freedom. And that's what we're rejoicing in this morning. And so as we come together, this cultural church series, we're again, we're looking at two paths churches can take and do take. One path is a church that's influenced by the culture or the path that where the church influences the culture. And we're asking the question, what kind of church are we to be? I think it's timely because we're a church only about two years old, a little over two years. I think it's timely that we start really asking these questions. Which church are we going to be? So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Divisive Disorder. Divisive Disorder. And again, like we talked about, as we come to this 1 Timothy book, which is a letter, we're reminded of a couple things. In 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and the Christ Jesus who is our hope. Which means that the words that he says have the same weight as the words of Jesus himself. I don't want us to miss that. This is all God's inspired word. Same thing as we come to God's word, there's three paths that we can take, just generally. When it comes to his word, we can reject it. Did God really say? We can twist it. Well, what I think God actually meant, like he was confused. Or we can accept it. That's going to be no different today. And the theme verse that we've talked about is 1 Timothy 3.15, which is really the point of this letter. He says, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And we have to note that conduct is being corrected is individual activity and within the church collectively. And so the passage that we're going to see this morning, one we have to know, this is not a standalone passage. Sometimes that's how we treat the Bible. We take one passage and run with it, or one verse and run with it. This doesn't stand by itself, this portion of Scripture. It comes after what we saw last week of prayer that pleases the Lord, specifically praying for everyone and those in leadership and authority, ultimately for their salvation. And it comes before addressing the topic of elders, pastors, overseers, 
and deacons. This is sandwiched right in the middle. So this is not a standalone. Again, these letters that were written to local churches in the first century would have been read aloud through its entirety. Not what we do, right? But we're so far removed from the first century, it demands some explanation. Also, what I want us to know as we enter this passage is that we have the joy this morning. Within this passage, there's one passage within this passage. It's probably the most controversial in our culture today that we're going to talk about. And then there's one verse in this passage that is completely confusing to everyone you ask. And we have the joy to talk about all of them together this morning. You ready for that? No, you're not. It's okay, though. It's okay. We're going to get there. All right, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. It says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. And you think this is hard, so it's going to get harder, okay? So hang on. All right, real quick, I think this passage calls us to consider two questions. Number one, what is pleasing to the Lord? Number two, who is the aim of the church's worship? So last week we saw pleasing prayer, pleases the Lord, right? There's this prayer that prays, prays for everyone, ultimately for their salvation, that pleases the Lord. But here it talks about when praying, lift your hands. And what I need us to see is this is much less about physical posture and much more about heart posture. Also, feel free to raise your hands in worship. That's all I'm saying. It's okay. We'll be all right. But what we see here corresponds with Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, which says, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Tied together. Hands and the heart. And so what we see here is, one, it's not the absence of sin when you pray, but you're not mindful of the presence of any unrepentant sin. Because that's what purifies us. It's Jesus' blood on the cross by faith is applied to you. That makes you righteous, clean, pure. So we can approach the throne of God. We can pray. We can worship. Knows that he hears us because of forgiveness that we received in Christ Jesus. But how can we pray when we know we have this sin going on that we're totally good with? How can we worship when you know you have this sin that's been confronted to you? Listen, the, when you've been shown your sin, that's God's grace in your life. I think we forget that. That's God's grace in showing you that he's molding you and shaping you. And hopefully this is destructive in your life. How can you worship in unrepentance? The point is, you can't. You shouldn't. And prayer is worship. But it's very similar to what we see Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. He talks about worship in Matthew 5. He says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and sister, and then come offer your gift. This is the point. To be reconciled with one another and ultimately with the Lord. And so what we see here is right heart posture when worshiping pleases the Lord. 
and consequently wrong heart posture, bringing focus to the Lord from the Lord to yourself is not pleasing. This is what's happening here. They're bringing focus from the Lord to themselves in a lot of different ways. See, raising of hands in the first century, all the pagan practices did that. Majority of them, that wasn't foreign. They all raised their hands, but had no meaning. What he's saying is that when you raise your hands, you better make sure you know what you're doing. Is your heart posture right? So specifically, men were not to flaunt their spirituality when praying during worship. Women were not to flaunt their sexuality or affluency when gathering for worship. And this is where we get into the clothing and things that we find so abrasive, which I know this isn't lost on me. What I want us to see is God, uh, Paul was not writing a fashion guide for women. That's not what he was doing. It's not like, okay, oh, I got pearls, check them out the door, right? Hairstyles looking a little elaborate, braided hair. No, that's not what we're saying. This was calling attention to the attention that women were calling to themselves. Hope you follow that. This was calling attention to the attention that women were calling to themselves. And no, we talked about week one when we started the series, that the culture in Ephesus is very similar in many ways to the culture we have here in our culture today. And what we see here is that the culture was creeping into the church. This is where we gotta be mindful of. See, we have women here who were either sexually suggestive with how they were dressing or financially expressive. Calling attention to their figure or their finances. So what, which at best is a distraction, at worst causes division, but both are dishonoring to the Lord. Do we see that? Are we getting that? I think the point here is that the attention should be brought to the character, not your clothing. Attention should be brought from your character, not your clothing. So whose aim are you attempting to direct during worship? Again, this is confronting the church gathered for worship. So whose aim are we attempting to direct attention towards? It reminds me of my, we went to a, a wedding recently and my wife loves going to weddings. They're just great reminders and just a lot of fun. But as we know, the the wife of the bride at the wedding is going to be the most beautiful person in the room. We know that. They're going to dress in white usually, right? Usually. Just all done up beautiful. They have the attention. That's where the attention's aimed. Intentionally. And rightfully so. It's good. But this would be like my wife said, you know what? I'm going to wear my wedding dress also that we wore 20 years ago. And I'm going to do it my hair. We know that would be wrong. This is not your day. I love you. It's not your day. This is about the bride. So it would be like us coming to worship, wanting all attention for ourselves. This is not about you. It's not about me. We come here, and it's all about Christ. He's the only one worthy of our worship. And so when we see here, it's not about, it's much more about your heart posture. And he talks about good works. And this really goes in line with what Jesus also teaches in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So whose aim are we directing attention towards? Is it us? Or is it to the Lord? That's both in gathered worship, and we know this translates into the Monday through Saturday. 
whose aim are we directing attention towards? And again, this has been used wrongly in so many ways. You know, the modest is hottest. Give me a break, okay? Let's be honest. I don't know where that comes from. I guess I get it from here. It's not saying that women should dress this way or that way. It's definitely confronting a cultural, cultural issue, but it transcends the culture. It is the heart of the matter. But what we see here and what's, what's, what's going on is the gospel levels the playing field. The gospel is completely countercultural, brings a new level of equality between men and women. And Galatians 3 captures this really well. Verse 26 of Galatians 3 tells us that, for through faith you are all sons of God in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's important. The sons means, that doesn't mean everyone. It means your sons. That means women, your sons. What in the world is that? Like, that we have to explain that in 2022. I get it. It's an inheritance. The sons would receive an inheritance. It's more than inheritance. So what we're seeing is that we all, men and women alike, in Christ Jesus, receive the inheritance of Christ Jesus. So it's, this is empowering to women which is a knock we get against the Bible a lot. We see an equality before Christ Jesus. In the same passage, Galatians 3, it says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ. Now, baptized is baptism by the Holy Spirit, saved, brought into faith by Christ. But then we come to verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is important. Because what this is saying is that there's equalness, not sameness. There's equalness, but not sameness. We're not all the same. We're distinct. And that's why I need us to see during our time together this morning. And what we see here is that the gospel is bringing freedom, especially for women who were in oppressive culture, but the gospel and the church were bringing, elevating women. And that's what we miss here. This is not Paul saying all women should dress in a certain way. No, there is disruptions because they're using their gospel freedom within the church. That's what we're going to see more here in a minute. And that's what he says also we see in the Corinthian church. There's issues because of the gospel freedom in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. But even then, Paul points out that God's a God of order, which brings peace. Which obviously means disorder brings division. That's what we're seeing here in the church in Ephesus. So it's much more about the heart posture than anything else. Whether you're praying the heart posture or what you're wearing the heart posture should influence what you wear and how you pray. Does that make sense? Because it's only going to get harder from here. All right? Okay. Tell so we got that straight. Let's get to easy passage. Verse 11. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Welcome to the way, church. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk about how you should be quiet. What's interesting here is quiet and submission stands out. I know it does because it's so abrasive in our culture. What we miss here is a woman is to learn. This is incredible because this is countercultural in the first century. Women were to learn. Actually, this is countercultural in the 21st century in many countries. Women are to learn. You're not equal to men, but the church, they were equal. Men and women were elevated. You're to learn, and we see that in the life of Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself, but you see it. Women were elevated, invited to learn. This is significant. 
But the point here is order. And the quiet here means orderly, not unruly. Because if they want to say, like, shut up, if you want to say that, there's a different word for silence in Greek. That's not the word he uses. So if you meant absolute silence when you walk in the door and you hand out muzzles, it doesn't say that. There is a disorder going on. And so that's what this quiet means, is a settling down. And here we see that, again, the gospel brings freedom, but also brings unity and peace. And we know that Paul didn't mean absolute silence. Because, again, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is what we do. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? 1 Corinthians 11, we see that women were permitted to pray and prophesy within the local gathering. But within an orderly way. And then also in submission to the leadership of the church. And I know this, this, this is offensive in a lot of ways, but submission needs to be rightly understood. One, there's a, a specific truth being approached here. Confronting disorderly conduct of the women in the church. That's the issue here, being confronted. But there's a general truth that applies to all cultures. This text, this passage, is not culturally contingent. This is important. Because this is how people want to water down, especially this passage. Now, that was just for the first century. I heard just this week, I've done a lot of research over the years on this passage because it's so controversial in our context and our culture. But just this week, I heard someone saying, you know what? Paul didn't know what the church would be like in 2022. For sure. But you know who did? God. Who inspired this? God. You can't go there. Like, this, is, this transcends culture. So there's a specific truth, but there's a general truth that applies. So women and men are both to submit to the leading of the church. Both. The, one, the issue here is women were using their freedoms in resistance to some of the church's authority. And here's what would rub the wrong way a little bit. The term leadership and authority and submission. I mean, that rubs everyone the wrong way. But here's the point. Hebrews 13 verse 17 tells us this. This is to a church about its leaders. Obey your leaders pastors, elders, overseers, and submit to them. You're like, that's easy for you to say, pastor on stage. But then it says more. Who, these men, who, since they keep watch over your souls and those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. It's all about you in the first place, right? Like you submit so elders, pastors, overseers can lead and care for your souls because we will give an account before God how we lead and care for his church. And ultimately, it's going to be profitable for the church. So we all submit. But again, it's pointing out to a specific issue within the Ephesian church of women using their freedom in an unbiblical way. And so since we're on the topic of pastors, elders, and overseers, leads us to verse 12. Again, it keeps getting easier as we progress through this passage. I want you to know that. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. I tell you, I've been 
this passage I've been really praying through and meditating on for two weeks specifically, and it is a burden. Because I desire for God's word to be an encouragement to you. And so I desire for God to work through me to articulate this in a way that encourages your heart and refreshes your soul. And here I'm saying, women, you can't do certain things. That's refreshing, right? Again, welcome to the way, church. Again, the quiet here is emphasizing orderliness. Again, this is not a standalone passage. It's tied to the following verses that we'll see more next week talking about pastors, elders, and overseers. And the authoritative teaching and leading is referring to the responsibility of the pastor, elder, overseer. Again, this is confronting cultural conduct that was creeping into the church. Yet this passage is not culturally contingent. So we need to see. See there in the first century, we've talked about this week one, the temple of Artemis. In that temple, the worship was led by women who were priestess. And what Paul's saying is not so much within the church of Christ. That doesn't transfer, doesn't translate. And this is where we got to understand when we come to the Bible here in the 21st century, how our experiences shape our expectations. We all come to the Bible with some experiences that shape how we view things. But we cannot look to the culture for the standard of living as Christians. We cannot look to the culture for the standard of living as a church. Again, this is what we're looking at in this series. And so a couple things I'm going to press on here. Number one, I'm going to come back to in a minute. Men, you are called to lead. I just want to put that to the side. Just have that resonate in your mind for a minute. Men, you're called to lead. Women are to lead in many ways and in many different areas of life. Listen, here, I want to, maybe a couple examples. May or may not help, hopefully they do. A couple weeks ago, I took my boys to a, an NHRA race, right? Funny cars, drag racing, motorcycles, just a lot of fun. Burning rubber, smells, blowing out your eardrums. It was a great time. It was amazing. And you see it's just some progression in the sport, like many sports. They have different classes of racing, different classes of cars. And many of the leaders in these different classes were women. So is the Bible saying that women can't be race car drivers? No, not saying that. Is the Bible saying you can't be a president? Nope. How about a CEO? No, it doesn't say that. Women are could and should lead in various aspects throughout life and various aspects throughout ministry. By God's design, women should strive to thrive in their giftedness within biblical bounds, which does exclude the office of pastor, elder, overseer. And I know there's the rub. I know it. Don't shoot the messenger. We're going to preach God's word. But I want to preach it to where it's encouraging and edifying and refreshing. And this has been my, the weight I've had these past two weeks specifically for this passage because I know the cultural rub. I de- desperately want us to see how valuable every person is in the sight of God and what it looks like to live godly. Throughout all of history, we see women elevated in Scripture. Mighty women for the Lord. Just to name a few, the Old Testament, you got Miriam, who's a prophetess, who leads out in spontaneous worship after the exodus through the Red Sea. 
we have Deborah, a judge of Israel, basically leading the nation of Israel through one of the darkest periods of their life. And what's interesting, when you read the commentary, some will say that it was insulting to have a woman leading the man, so that's why God appointed her. I would say that's stupid. I think it actually elevates women because it shows their giftedness, their skill to lead. We have women like Rahab, Ruth, and Esther, and many more throughout the Old Testament, just heroes of our faith. Esther is probably one of my favorites. In a time when Israel was on the brink of extermination, she had the choice to go stand before the king, uninvited, which would be certain death in many ways. And her statement in Esther 4, she says, I will go to the king even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. In other words, let's roll, right? That's hardcore. I love that. We have mighty women for God throughout the whole Old Testament. But as we see, they're mighty in ministry throughout the Old Testament, yet there were no women who were priests. That's important. How about the New Testament? Okay, we see many mighty women used by the Lord, for the Lord, mighty in ministry. We have Mary Magdalene, who has all kinds of baggage in the background, who was the first one to report the resurrected Jesus. We have many women included in the active ministry of Jesus. We have Phoebe in Romans 16, who was a deaconess of the church in Syncrache. That's noteworthy. That's, that's important. That's unheard of. We have Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, the wife, and Aquila, her husband, named numerous times throughout the Old Testament. Paul calls them co-workers, both of them, co-workers in the gospel, saying that they risked their neck next for Paul. So Paul is using hero language for Priscilla to show her significance and her husband. And majority of the time when they're referenced together, which they're always referenced together, Priscilla is named first, which shows her significance in ministry in many ways. But some, some people even take that outside of biblical bounds. And again, we, it's noteworthy that there are many women in throughout the New Testament who are mighty in ministry, yet Jesus selected 12 men to be disciples. Now, why is that? Do you think Jesus was afraid to confront cultural norms of the day? No. If you know anything about Jesus, it's absolutely not the case. He was countercultural in almost every way and almost everything he did. So we know that's not the case. And we also see that there were no women who serve as pastor, elder, and overseer. It's actually to the contrary. And it's not a knock against women. It's by God's design. Again, women are to lead in many ways and in many different areas of life. But men are commanded to lead in specific ways. I think it's just lost. Men, if God has called you and allowed you to be a husband, you're commanded to lead in a specific way as a husband. You're commanded to lead, number one, but in a specific way, number two, Ephesians 5, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That changes things, doesn't it? Because we take so much offense to the, the, the passage that's previous to this, women, wives, submit to your husbands. But look how husbands are supposed to lead. Like Christ loved the church. Men, how are we doing there? 
That's the goal. That's the standard. So, man, you're commanded to lead in that way. And so, young men, if you're not married yet, know before you enter a marriage, this is the standard that you will be accountable for before a holy God. How did you lead your wife? Do you lead her like Christ loved the church? Amen. You're also called some for the pastor, elder, overseer. And this is important. So how do you to treat your wife like Christ loved the church? How do you to treat the church? Acts 20, 28 tells pastors, elders, overseers, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And again, within the bounds of the Bible, women are not permitted to serve as a pastor, elder, overseer, nor are a majority of men. I think we miss that. See, we're equal opportunity offenders here. That's what we do. See, we, we think that it's so, it, we'll talk about this more next week, but a majority of men will not meet the qualifications for pastor, elders, and overseers. God has a standard by his design, and do we trust it? And this is important. I think this gets lost. Authority does not mean superiority. Authority does not mean superiority, but rather the responsibility before God Almighty. That's important. It's not better than, it's different. Different level responsibility. And here we want to say this. You want to influence the culture? We need more men who pass passionately pursue Christ rather than passively caving into the culture. It's just true. We need more men who passively pursue Christ rather than passively caving to the culture. I'm tired of seeing show after show after show treating men as stupid. I think we're starting to believe it as incapable, incompetent. That's not biblical manhood. It's not the gospel. It's not what we see in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, it's clear that men and women have complementary roles. Equal worth, equal value. We're all created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. That men and women were created distinct from one another, yet dependent on one another. That's important. Distinct from one another, yet dependent on one another. And seemingly, as Paul was anticipating pushback, answers the objections coming from the first century church and consequently the 21st century church in verse 13 and 14. He says, you know, it wasn't culturally the issue. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. So this isn't a first century issue only. He goes back to the creative order to establish his case that he's making for God's order and design. And so don't hear what this passage is not saying. It is not saying it's because women are more gullible or naive. It's not what it's saying at all. Couldn't be further from the truth. It is saying that by God's design, there's a male headship rooted in the creation order. Let me ask you this, a little Bible quiz. Who was the first command of don't do given to? Adam, the first man created. We see that in Genesis 2, 
verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. It was his responsibility. And then he's the one that stood by while Eve was tempted and caved in to the temptation. But he's the one that stood there. He was the one responsible. And so in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul doesn't put it on Eve. He says it was through man that sin, transgression entered the world. It was Adam's fault, not Eve's. Both responsible, but Adam failed to leave. But he passively stood by and allowed it to happen. And then he participated. Which is interesting. Because then you come to Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. It's the first thing it wasn't good, for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And again, I'm just going to try to get all the offensive passages out in one sermon. That's what we're going to do. Because being a helper, women take us very degrading and offensive. I would argue the opposite. Who was the one who was needing helping? Think about that for a minute. If anybody should be offended, it's the guys. But this is exactly it. We're created distinct from one another, yet dependent on one another. I didn't realize how incomplete I was until I got married. You know why? Because she told me so. No, I'm joking. I am kidding. That is not true. It's not true. When I saw her strengths and how they complemented my weaknesses, I saw how the oneness is a more completeness. The oneness of marriage brings a more completeness. These complementary roles between men and women that God has arranged throughout history, we see it was created or established in the creative order. So men and women were created distinct from one another, yet dependent on one another. And it's interesting, after Eve and Adam sinned, who did God come asking for while they're in the garden following their sin? Adam. Came for the man. So male headship didn't start in the fall, which some argue. Some argue that it started in the fall and then it's no longer applicable because Jesus came and conquered sin and death. Male headship's been the standard since creation and is today. But do we trust it? Or do we approach the Bible with, did God really say? Like many do. And as we come here, we come to verse 15. So I told you at the beginning, we're covering a couple passages. One, one of the most controversial passages, which we've been through. And then one of the most confusing passages, verse 15. It says, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. So write this down. I'm going to give you my interpretation of what this means. I don't know. Like I came here for that? You're welcome. What's interesting, no one knows. There's a lot of confusion about this. Every commentary gives two, three, four answers that may be a possibility, which I find very shaky ground if I'm going to sit here and teach you what 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy 2.15 tells us. 
it brings up more questions than answers. Because we, who's, who is she? What does save mean? Who are they? But what we know, and I think it's rooted in creation since it follows, there's a thought that through childbearing, since the curse came from sin, I don't know if you all know this, I've experienced it, not personally, but firsthand. Praise the Lord, because God didn't make me like that. Childbearing is painful, fairly painful. Experienced that a couple times as a bystander. But it's not a result of your separation from Christ. It's a result from the curse. But it doesn't mean you're separated. So it begs the question, then what saves? Obviously, if it's childbearing that saves us eternally, my wife would be extra, 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 extra saved. Got a few kids. It's not what it's saying. But what we do agree on, we know what it's getting to, is that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And as we come to this whole passage, there's a lot of things that are countercultural. But it comes down, do we trust the Lord's leading or not? Is he Lord over, over all of our lives or not, individually and collectively as a church? This church believes God's word. And we're going to strive in obedience to every letter of it because we trust it. Even if it continues to be more countercultural, which I know this is. But my prayer is that it's encouraging. My prayer is that we see the beauty of God's design and how we all thrive in the way God's made us unique in his image, wonderfully made, knitted together. It's amazing. And I think if we understood how God made us, that will better inform how we view ourselves. That's where our security, that's where our self-confidence comes from. It's from the Lord. We're flawed. But God's made us unique and special for a reason. And do we trust his creative order? And as we close, it's a reminder how much we need the Lord. We know that nothing we do saves us, even given childbearing. Nothing saves us eternally besides faith alone and Christ alone. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. That means the debt has been paid to Telestai. That means all of our sin debt, past, present, and future, has been paid for, yet only applied to your life by faith alone. So it's up to you and to me. Do you receive that truth? No matter your age, the gospel is so simple, yet we make it complicated. Well, I need to do this first. And I need to do this first. And I got to clean my act up first. And I got to stop drinking first, stop smoking first. I need to stop doing this first and stop doing that first. If that was the case, then Jesus didn't have to die in the first place if you can get yourself clean enough. You come to Jesus how you are. Baggage, background, issues, and let Christ do the changing in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible says you're baptized by the Holy Spirit when you believe. God does that. And let us continue to be men and women who passionately pursue Christ in every area of our lives through collectively gathering for worship or Mondays going to your corporate office or leading your family at home. Passionately pursue Christ. You want to see the culture influenced by our church? 
be men and women who passionately pursue Christ, regardless of the cost. And if you don't know Christ, if you know a lot of facts about him, but you haven't transferred that trust from your head to your heart, what are we waiting for? There's no words I can tell you to persuade you. That's why we've been praying for you all morning. We do all throughout the week for the God to do the work that only he can do to soften your heart, to remove the blindness from our eyes, to see him in his good grace and his love that he has for you. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Starting at the moment of belief and lasting forever, joined with him in the relationship that we were created to have in the first place. Do you believe that? We're going to close with a response. I'm going to pray for us. It's going to look a little bit different today. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to respond as the Lord's leading in your life right now. Maybe it's some sin that God's showing you that you need to repent of. Praise God. Do that. Settle that with him now. Maybe you need to pray with someone in the room. Do that. Maybe for the first time, you need to finally surrender your life to the Lord, Jesus, King of your life. All of it. I know many of us are guilty at certain times to compartmentalize our faith. Jesus, you can have my Sunday mornings, but Mondays are mine. It's not what following Jesus is. Do you trust him or not? It's black and white, just like our slides, right? So I'm going to pray for us. Today, we don't have a worship song. We're just going to pray and respond. So let me lead us in prayer. I'm going to ask you to respond through prayer as I pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for the encouragement that you give us as we gather as your people. The encouragement that you give us as we look to you, your faithfulness, and your enduring word. Lord, continue to shape and mold our hearts for you. Help us to see you more clearly. Remove any blind spots that we have in our lives and remove any barriers that we've placed in our relationship with you. Show us that. Show us the barriers that we've created that are hampering our relationship with you. Lord, I ask that you continue to build our faith, restore and refresh our spirits. Forgive us on those areas of our life that we've strayed away. Give us a passion to pursue you in every moment of our every day. And Lord, help us to see how you've created us uniquely special in your image. Help us to thrive in our distinctions and embrace how we do need one another to complement one another in a way that glorifies you. Father, I thank you. Continue, I ask that you lead us in worship. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.